Let's pray once again. Our Heavenly Father, as a result of our being together this morning, everything that's taken place, everything that will take place, may none of us ever be guilty of taking the person of the Lord Jesus Christ for granted. May he never be commonplace to us. May we always thrill at what he's done for us and continues to do for us and for who he is. May we learn a lesson from the people before us, a fickle crowd that we see constantly, a fickle crowd that is not able to think properly, that judges by appearance, that makes wrong judgments. I pray that you would help us to exalt in the person of the Lord Jesus. May we truly boast in him. May we understand who he is and respond to him. So please help us to that end now. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. A prophet without honor. We're in Matthew chapter 13. Scripture has been read for us already, verses 53 through 58. But if you would keep your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 13, we will make constant reference to those six verses that are there. A writer once said this. He said, when we're misunderstood we may not have communicated properly. You know, sometimes when we're misunderstood, it's always the other person's fault, but sometimes we haven't communicated properly. Here's an example. The person who wrote this ad for an auto repair shop didn't really mean to convey what he actually said. You may have to think about this for a second. Auto repair service, free pickup and delivery. Try us once and you'll never go anywhere again. That's not exactly a confidence builder. Jesus was often misunderstood during his ministry, but unlike the example on the screen, it wasn't his fault. People we're going to see in today's scripture took offense at Jesus. They failed to believe that the local hometown carpenter's son could at the same time be the son of God. They refused to believe that. And it didn't matter what evidence was presented constantly before them. They simply refused to believe that. Well, let's examine this and see if we can find the message the Lord has for us today. First of all, what did Jesus do? And if you look at verses 53 and 54, it's in the text. I'm not going to put these on the screen. But first of all, he, he did what he always did. He was speaking parables and he finished doing that. In chapter 13, there were seven or eight, depending on how you number them. I count seven myself, seven parables in chapter 13. When he finished the parables, it was time for him to move on. The Lord Jesus always knew when the time was right. And then the second thing that he did, he left the Sea of Galilee area. That's where he had been speaking those parables. He had been sitting in a boat to address the great crowds standing on the beach. And so despite the fact that there were huge crowds that were there, he was telling them these stories. He didn't stay there and continue to be involved with those great crowds. It was time to move on. He always knew when that was. The third thing that he did, it says he came to his hometown. His hometown was Nazareth. That was where Jesus grew up and where his family resided. He would now make his last visit there. He had visited there at least once before that. This makes it very, very significant. 
In fact, this is pivotal. For most in his hometown, this would be the last chance to see Jesus up close and personal, to hear what he had to say, maybe directly to them. So the Lord Jesus finished speaking his parables. He left the Sea of Galilee area, and he came to his own hometown. And then fourthly, he taught the people in his hometown, in their synagogues, as a trusted rabbi would do. Now picture that scene. Here he is. He's come home. And the people that knew him growing up are all there. So the next question is, how did the locals react to him? And this is kind of bizarre as we look at this. The first thing it tells us, they reacted with astonishment. In the Greek, it's the word ekpleso, astonishment. A very strong word. It means to strike out or force out by a blow. It's found only in the sense of knocking one out of his senses, though, or out of somebody's self-possession. To strike with astonishment or even terror or admiration. In the New Testament, it's only used in the passive voice. It means to be struck. Somebody else is doing the action. To be struck with astonishment or admiration or amazement. The point is they were blown away by the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's their first reaction. Then they reacted with six questions. They reacted with six questions Verses 54 through 56 tell us the questions. The first question was, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Where did he get this wisdom and these mighty works? One of the commentaries puts it this way in perspective. How could one of their own hometown boys say and do the things for which he had become so well known? How could that happen? This puzzled them. And they found it easier to cling to their ignorance than to acknowledge the truth. But notice that they acknowledged these things about him. They acknowledged his wisdom and his mighty works. Nobody tried to deny them. They acknowledged them before him. The second question, is this not the carpenter's son? Do you notice the carpenter's son, as if maybe there were only one carpenter in Nazareth. And A.T. Robertson, a Greek scholar, says this, the well-known, the leading, or even for a time, the only carpenter in Nazareth till Jesus took the place of Joseph as the carpenter. Is this not the carpenter's son? And then a series of questions that seem to be a little redundant. They want to make sure this is that same person that they remembered growing up. Third question, is not his mother called Mary? Fourth question, are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? We talked about this once before. We believe that these were Jesus' real half-brothers. These are not cousins. These These are related to Jesus because Mary and Joseph had children after Mary had Jesus. Fifth question, are not all his sisters with us. That means there were at least two sisters and probably more. There were a lot of children. Jesus had brothers and sisters. Sixth question. Where then did this man get all these things? 
They're not denying that he had all these things. Just where did he get them? Where did he get them? He grew up here in Nazareth. And some of you who know your scriptures understand that Nazareth was a place that was held in disdain by a lot of people. So where did he get all of these things? Six questions to identify who Jesus was. So how did the locals respond? With absolute astonishment and with questions to identify who he really was. And you would expect at this point there's going to be a great reaction to him. But it tells us the next thing. They responded with offense. Look at verse 57. And they took offense at him. And they responded with unbelief. Look at verse 58. And he did not do many works there because of their unbelief. That was their response. Astonishment. And some questions that were very significant. Where did he get this wisdom and all these mighty works? Where did it come from? Again, they're not denying it. It's there. Where then did this man get all these things? Again, quoting from A.T. Robertson, the Greek scholar, he says, and you'll understand that when I tell you that this is a graphic, imperfect passive. Literally, they stumbled at him. Another commentator says they were repelled by him. Another one says they turned against him. Still another says it was unpardonable for Jesus not to be commonplace like themselves. They wanted to drag him back to them. Where did he get all of this? This is unlike anybody else around here. So instead of acknowledging who he was and worshiping him as God, they wanted to drag him down to their level. What was Jesus' response? He identified with the dishonor given to the Old Testament prophets from their neighbors and even their own families by quoting a proverb common to both Greek and Roman as well as Hebrew writers. And the Lord Jesus said this, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. What he's saying is the prophets of old Oftentimes, where they lived, their own families would reject them. They could go somewhere else and they would be honored, but not among the locals and even among their own family members. We have a similar proverb today. Does anybody know, fill this out for me, familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. And that's exactly what happened there with the Lord Jesus. And so what is Jesus' response to the offense and the unbelief? Quoting the proverb, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. I'd like to just, just mention uh, a, a story. This is kind of ancient history right now. But I applied this verse, but it's such a credit to the people of Alden Union Church that I, I feel obligated to say this. Back in 1978... I became what was known then as the minister to youth at Alden Union Church. And I was the minister to youth. A couple of years later, we lost our pastor. There was a search committee set up. They were looking for a, a pastor for three years. And every once in a while, somebody would come up to me and say, hey, are you interested in this? 
And I'd say, there's no way in the world anybody in all the Union Church would want me to be the senior pastor. They know me. They've seen me. They know my foibles. They know how annoying I can be. They know how immature I am. Uh, There are a lot of things that went on when I was the youth pastor growing up, and I thought there's no way in the world. And, And largely because of this, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. These people know me. There's no way in the world. And it's got to be a credit to the people of Alden Union Church that they decided to overlook, to forbear with all of these things, and they still called me to be the senior pastor. This is an exception to this proverb, and there are exceptions, but that's because this was an exceptional congregation, and a loving one, and a forbearing one, and a a lot of credit to this congregation, obviously all the credit to the Lord for that situation. Ordinarily, though, this is true. The more you get to know somebody, the more likely it is that you're going to find things about that person that you do not like. Familiarity can truly breed contempt. Prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And these people at that particular time were looking at the person of the Lord Jesus, and they were saying, he's nothing special. Don't know how he's doing all these things, but he's one of us. He's from Nazareth. He can't be anything really special. Remember this, too, that if you remember from Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 to 50, Jesus' family came to him on that occasion, and he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? It's those who do the will of God. And the Lord Jesus wasn't even acknowledging at that point that family as being extra special. And you may recall we've talked about some of this before in our study of Matthew. At first, Jesus' family was very skeptical about him. You'll turn with me to John chapter 7 for just a moment. John chapter 7. You may recall these words. John chapter 7, verse 1. After this, it starts out, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, now let me stop for just a minute. To understand what follows, we need to to know that this is sarcasm. The brothers are not saying this for any other reason than they're in contempt of their brother, the Lord Jesus. Here's what they say. Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then the motive is given afterwards, for not even his brothers believed in him. Prophet is not without honor except in his own household and among his own people. Actually, take it a step further, they thought Jesus was crazy. His own family did. Mark chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Put him in protective family custody. Let's seize him. He's making a complete fool of himself out there, what he's doing. Even his own family couldn't understand. They knew what he was doing. But where did it all come from? But later, after the resurrection, they were believers. It was very clear about that. In the upper room, 
after the ascension of the Lord Jesus, there were a lot of people who were there. It says in Acts 1.14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. It doesn't say most of his brothers. It doesn't say all of his brothers except all of his brothers were there. They were all believers now. And there they were with their mother, joining the others in that upper room after the ascension, joining in prayer and devoting themselves to the things of the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5. Do we not, the Apostle Paul asks, have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas or Peter? The brothers of the Lord now involved in the ministry. Not listed here as apostles, but if you look at Galatians chapter 1, verse 19, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, now being included among the apostles. One step further, I won't ask you to turn to Acts chapter 15, verse 13, but what a fascinating story that is. That's the Jerusalem council. They came for advice. Paul was there. Barnabas was there. They were asking advice on what is it that we teach people about circumcision and being Jews, and they needed a ruling from the council. People came and testified. And then when the decision time came, all the apostles were there, all the early church leaders were there. When it came time for a decision in Acts 15, 13, the apostle James, now the Lord's brother, said this, here's what I say. In verse 19, a few verses later, here is what we are going to do. He was now the boss, Jesus' brother. Here's what I say. We heard everybody. Here's what I say. And a few verses later, here's what we're going to do. He was the head of the church in Jerusalem. Jesus' family, very skeptical about him at first. But after the resurrection, they were believers. That's great evidence for a real resurrection, by the way. What was the result of the unbelief and the offense directed toward Jesus? He rewarded their unbelief with a paucity of mighty works. Sorry, paucity, 10th grade English vocabulary. Let me define that. Not very many. Scarcity. Didn't do much there. He was going around everywhere else, performing miracle after miracle. Not here. One commentator says, unbelief largely hindered the Savior's work in Nazareth. He healed only a few sick folk there, according to Mark's gospel. It was not because he could not do the works. Man's wickedness cannot restrain God's power. But he would have been blessing people where there was no desire for blessing, filling needs where there was no consciousness of need, healing people who would have resented being told they were sick. It's the principle, once again, of light received, more light given. Light rejected, no more light given. I'd like to examine that in a little more detail this morning than we have recently. We've mentioned it before, but I want to give it a little bit more detail right now. We distinguish between general revelation or natural revelation. 
how God reveals himself to everyone on the planet. General or natural revelation and special revelation, two different things. General or natural revelation lets everyone on the planet know there is a supreme creator God. We're going to look at two passages here. If you'll turn with me first to Psalm 19. Psalm chapter 19. This psalm answers a lot of questions that people have today. In Psalm 19, we're going to read these first four verses. And what is going to be described are two missionaries. The greatest missionaries that anyone has ever, ever seen or even heard about. These two missionaries don't need sleep. They take no days off. They have no home assignments. We used to call them furloughs. They don't have any of them. They have no holidays. These two missionaries are omnilingual. They speak every language in the world. And you know what? They don't even require any financial support. They don't add a penny to the budget. These two missionaries that God has working for him day and night, every single day. Here's what it says. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. And then it starts talking about the sun, the greatest of the natural revelations that we see. Can you imagine that? General natural revelation. Everybody in the world is able to know that there is a creator God if they would simply look up into the sky on a dark night. And they look up and they see the moon and the stars, and then they see the sun the next morning, and they understand there is something that is greater, something that is bigger, far more powerful than anything that we could ever do or know. That's the point that is being made there. Let's turn to Romans chapter 1, where the same point is made with some different words. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Remember, God always has his missionaries declaring his glory so that everybody in the whole world can see. He's got at least those two from Psalm 19. Here we are in verse 18, Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And then it goes on and on to say how bad it gets when people have done that. We're without excuse. Anybody who has rejected the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, anybody who denies there is a God, There's no excuse for that because it is plain that there is a God. That's the point that is being made in these two passages. That's general revelation or natural revelation. But the point is general revelation is not enough to save anyone. Special revelation takes them beyond the general to the specific, and it's found in God's Word. The written Word, the Bible, and the living Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's special revelation. And the point that I'm making is that God obligates himself when people respond to him to get them more light, more understanding. That's the point that's made all throughout the scriptures. That principle that he's obligated himself when someone responds to knowledge, he receives more knowledge, more light. I call it the knowledge of God on a dimmer switch. The light gets brighter and brighter unless someone turns off the switch. Imagine yourself, one of those deep, dark caverns in our country. We can remember our times in the Luray Caverns, for example. When you come to a certain point deep in the heart of the earth, the guide turns off the lights. You don't know dark until you're in one of those places. You cannot even see a hand in front of your face. It is totally dark. You can't even hope to be able to see anything at all because it is totally devoid of light. Imagine someone that's been in that darkness for a long time, wants to come out, needs to come into the light. How do you help them get accustomed to the light? You don't zap the light right away. You wouldn't snap on a 500-watt spotlight and shine it in someone's eyes. You'd gradually accustom them to the light. You might even get a dimmer switch and gradually increase the light according to the tolerance somebody has. He would respond to the light he was given. He'd be given a little bit more light on and on. Now think of the person in spiritual darkness. Everyone knows something about God. God constantly reveals himself every day, every night, every place on the planet. It goes on and on. No one is saved believing in nature, though. Salvation is by faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. When God makes some things plain, people may choose to respond to that by glorifying him and thanking him, as it says in Romans. That still doesn't save them, but it gives them the opportunity to receive more light. They've responded to what they've been given, and they will be given more. Full light comes like the light of a new day. It dawns. It comes gradually. It's on a dimmer switch. Do people receive more light by accident, by coincidence, or does it come from God? Let me share with you an Old Testament example. Second Chronicles chapter 34, verse 14. While they were bringing out the money that had been taken into the temple of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord that had been given through Moses. 
Now, that may not seem like a big deal. They hadn't had the law of the Lord for 30 or 40 years. It had been hidden from them. So imagine finding a Bible after 30 or 40 years without anybody having one or even having the remnants of any. This was no accident that they found the law of the Lord. This was a response to those who were obeying the light they had been given. In response to Josiah, who at the age of eight years old became king of Israel, at age 16, it tells us that he began to seek the Lord. He responded by obeying what he knew to be God's will. And God kept giving him more. At age 20, he tore down all the altars of Baal, cut them to pieces. When he was 26, he purified the temple and the land, restoring and repairing the house of God. It was then that the long-hidden law of God was found, and more light was given to Josiah and his people because he was responding already to what God had given to him. How does God get more light to people? In many ways, some we may not even know exist. We went to the Old Testament, for example. Let's go to the missionary world for a couple of examples. Because oftentimes people want to know, well, what about the people who have never heard? What about the people who have no knowledge whatsoever of God? There are no people who have no knowledge of God. According to Psalm 19, Romans 1, everybody on the planet is without excuse. The question is, are they responding to the light that they're given or not? missionary in South Thailand wrote in a prayer letter to one of her supporting churches about a Muslim village leader who was directed in a dream to come to a missionary hospital to learn about Jesus and believe in him. Do you believe that God could communicate through dreams even today? I do. You hear it all the time from the mission field. But during that very week, a missionary doctor who had worked in the Middle East for years made an unannounced visit to the same hospital because that doctor spoke fluent Arabic. He was able to share Christ with this Muslim. Great coincidence? That's not a coincidence. That's God in response to somebody reaching out for light, giving more light, sometimes in very dramatic ways. Oftentimes it's not. It's in small ways. It's very possible there is somebody here today that God has brought here strictly because you've been seeking, you've been looking for something. He brought you here to hear that faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is what saves, only faith in Christ, acknowledging our sin and asking Christ to be our Savior. A caravan was crossing from one part of India to another in the 19th century, and a missionary was traveling with it. As it passed along, a Hindu was so overcome by heat and weariness, he sank down and was left to die on the road. The missionary saw him and kneeling by his side when the other travelers had passed on, whispered into his ear, Brother, what is your hope? The dying man raised himself a little and with his last effort gasped out, The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses from all sin. The astonished missionary wondered how this man to all appearance, one who had never had an opportunity to hear about Christ. How could he come to know the Lord Jesus? Then he noticed a piece of paper grasped tightly in the dead man's hand. To his delight, he saw it was a single page from the Bible 
containing the first chapter of John's first epistle in which those words appear. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. On that single page, this Hindu had found eternal life. What a remarkable coincidence. If you ever want to read some fun stories, Don Richards and Eternity in Their Hearts. I'm sure we have that in our library. Story after story. Well, what about those people who have never heard? If they respond, they acknowledge there's a God, they thank him. He's obligated himself to bring to them more light. It is no accident where missionaries find themselves. Story after story about coming upon a situation and people saying, are you the one to come to tell us about God's son? Where did they get that? They got that from God. Other scriptural support for the principle of light on a dimmer switch. We've seen this already in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. That's what God has obligated himself to. Why did Jesus speak in parables? We've seen it already in this chapter earlier. Verses 11 and 12. He replied, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. In other words, to you, the disciples, but not to the people who are here. Whoever has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. Mentioned once before the Ethiopian eunuch. He'd been to Jerusalem. He was a God-fearer, but he didn't know the Lord Jesus Christ. There he was on his way back to his own country, and God transplanted Philip right there next to his chariot and said to him, do you understand what you're reading? He was reading about Jesus in Isaiah 53. God took Philip from a thriving ministry where great results were occurring, transplanted him right there to that one individual who was responding to light, and God obligated him to more light. I don't think you need an explanation for this one. Do you recognize in the artwork who that is? Responding to a great light on his way to Damascus. It's the Apostle Paul. God gave him more light, literally, vividly, dramatically, because he was probably the most religious person anywhere. But he didn't know Christ. In his own way, he was trying to respond, and God gave him the ultimate in light. Acts chapter 10, Cornelius, a Gentile. In this verse, in verse 4, Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. What was happening, Peter at the same time was seeing a vision. You need to go and see Cornelius because this was another one of those God-fearers who was responding to God's light and God gave him more light in a vision to Peter, a dream to Peter. And you know, the converse is also true. That's what we have here in Matthew 13. When anyone fails to respond to the light given, God is not obligated to give more. This is why Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3.12, I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? We all respond differently to light. Do you know what I do when I go out into light? Almost invariably, I sneeze. 
anybody sneeze when you look at yeah I, I I've heard this there are a lot of people who do that almost invariably I go out and, and I sneeze not everybody does that some are very sensitive to bright light more so than others some people read in the dark and it mystifies me kind of married to one that I don't understand how that how that happens I have to have all the light in the world people respond differently to spiritual light too God would have us all to be like moths. Do you know what they do with light? They respond. Unfortunately, many people are not like moths. They're more like roaches. I don't know whether you can see this clearly, but the roaches are scurrying for cover because somebody's just put on the light. John chapter 3, verses 19 through 21, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. Cary Grant once told how he was walking along the street met someone whose eyes locked into him with excitement. The man said, wait a minute, you're, you're, I know who you are. Don't tell me, oh, rock hud. Oh, no, you're not. Grant thought he'd help him out, so he finished the man's sentence. Cary Grant. And the fellow said, no, that's not it. You're, and then he went on naming some other names. There was Cary Grant identifying himself with his own name, but the man had someone else in mind. John says of Jesus, he was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. And even when Jesus identified who he was, the Son of God, the response was not a welcome recognition, but rather, ultimately, the crucifixion. Who do you say he is? Is he somebody you take for granted? He's one that a lot of people get excited about in a church. Who do you say he is? Peter got it right. He's the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's God himself. Not ever one to be taken for granted. Not ever one to be pulled back to us. He is totally otherworldly. He's deserving of our worship. And he offers the free gift of salvation, and he's the only one who can do that. If you haven't received that gift, there are going to be a couple of our men here afterwards. We'd love to talk to you about knowing Christ. Maybe you know somebody here who knows Christ. You'd love to talk to them. But please, if you don't know where you're going to spend eternity, don't leave here without having that settled. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we continue to marvel at the person of the Lord Jesus. We continue to marvel at who he is. We never have it grow mundane for us. We never want to pull him to our level. We recognize he's the exalted one. And I pray that for each one of us, we would make room for him if we haven't yet. We thank you in Jesus' name.